Father, we're so grateful uh, just for another chance to gather as your children and to pause uh, our busy lives and just to come again to your word and to meditate on it, to apply it, to think about its relevance for our lives. Lord, please impress upon our hearts this morning that this really is your living, breathing word, that it is authoritative in our life. Help us to stand in awe of really the great author behind it that just um, over the course of hundreds, if not thousands of years, was breathing through these human authors the very words of God. Help us to just, again, Lord, be in awe of you today. Thank you for Christ and that he is even anticipated here in Genesis, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up this morning uh, where we left off last week. You're welcome to turn to Genesis chapter 20 as we begin together. Genesis chapter 20, we're picking up with the story of Abraham, and easily the most significant uh, part of Abraham's story that we've been studying thus far has been the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, this wasn't one of the questions on your sheet, but I'm curious if you remember from last week, if you could just articulate maybe one of the three general promises that God made to Abraham as part of this covenant. Does anyone remember? Yeah, Kaylee. That Abraham would be a great nation. Yeah, that he would have uh, innumerable descendants. God says something like, as many as the stars of the heaven or as many as the sand on the seashore. Yep, Abraham would be a great nation. Claire? Yes, that Abraham would have a land. That is specifically the land of Canaan, and that is why we call it sometimes the promised land. Yep, because it was what God had promised Abraham. And then there was the third component as well. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, Shane. Yes, that through Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed. And that offspring of Abraham, of course, we saw last week, is none other than Jesus. And the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of that offspring is righteousness. We can't miss this. In the Old and New Testaments, Abraham was justified by faith, we're justified by faith. It's always been the same across the Testaments. If you want to come to God, you come to him by faith. In Genesis 15, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't some sacrifice that he made. It wasn't obeying the covenant of circumcision. It was faith in what God has said. So too with us. We're not justified by going to church, by tithing, by doing good works. It's simply faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone is what saves us. Last week, we considered a couple of New Testament passages, I believe both in Galatians, that make this connection between uh, Jesus and and the Abrahamic covenant. I wanted to consider a couple of more New Testament passages today really to demonstrate, in part, the interconnectedness of the scriptures, to show you that this isn't just something that Genesis talks about, but even when we get to the New Testament, people are still looking back to the Abrahamic covenant and talking about it. So the first uh, New Testament passage that references the Abrahamic covenant is found in Luke chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah John the Baptist's father, he's finally able to speak again after presumably nine months of being silent, 
And he, his first words are a prophecy of sorts. Before he even talks about his son, he first starts talking about the promised Messiah. And he says something like, you know what, this is the fulfillment of what the prophets had said, that he is going to be the descendant of David. And then he adds this after that, that the work of the Messiah is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Very clearly here, Zechariah is connecting the arrival of Jesus with the promise, the covenant, the oath that God had made with Abraham. Kind of interesting. There's another passage in the New Testament that also makes this connection. This time it's in the book of Acts, and Peter is speaking to a group of Jewish people, and he is saying that from the time of Moses, Jesus has been anticipated. Even before Moses, Samuel, I guess he's technically after Moses, Samuel's been talking, and all the prophets after him about Jesus. And even before that, Peter says, Jesus has been anticipated in the promise God made to Abraham, Peter says this in Acts chapter 3, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, very clearly here, Peter is saying, listen, guys, This famous promise that God made to Abraham that all of families of the earth will be blessed is fulfilled in Christ, and that blessing has come to you guys first. The blessing of Christ was to turn you from your wickedness. And we're told in Acts chapter 4 that many Jews who heard this believed. They see Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures. So I wanted to ask you guys, again, this isn't something that is on your sheet here, but you've had a couple of weeks now to be exposed to these promises that God made to Abraham to see the New Testament pick up this promise and say that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. If I could just remind you that this Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, that God made this promise to Abraham without requiring anything in return, and thousands of years later we see that it's fulfilled in Jesus Let me ask you this, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about God as we see this interconnectedness from Genesis to the book of Acts and Galatians and Luke? Luke, What kind of things should we be thinking about God right now as we see this? Yeah, he's faithful. faithful. Yeah, God keeps his promises, doesn't he? We're going to see this promise reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob. And every time we encounter it in the book of Genesis, we should be thinking, 1,800 to 2,000 years from now, God is going to keep this promise. Yeah, God is faithful. Anything else we should be thinking about God? John? God works on his own time. God works on his own time, yep. That's important to remember. Sometimes we like to see these promises maybe happen a little bit faster than thousands of years, but God has a plan. Claire, what were you going to say? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Yep. He's in control of all things. Andy? He sees everything. He sees everything. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Craig? 
Yes, uh, God works in his own ways. It may seem unusual to us, but his ways are not our ways. God works in his own ways. Yeah, Shane, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, it's not like Christ was the backup plan. He was the plan from the beginning. Exactly. Yeah, great point. God had been planning for Jesus since the beginning. We've even seen already, since the garden, God's been planning for this. Yeah, how about this idea? God took the initiative in making this covenant with Abraham. Joshua chapter 24, I came across this passage this week, actually says that Abraham, his brother, and his father were all idolaters. Prior to calling Abraham, Abraham was an idol worshiper. And God selects this one man and makes a series of incredible promises to him. It's not like Abraham is trying to initiate this covenant with God and try to find God and, you know, bless me, Lord. No, God takes initiative and he says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. And through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. We see God do this in the garden on humanity's darkest day. Adam and Eve are busy making excuses about why they sinned. And God says, I'm taking the initiative here and I'm going to make this promise to you that redemption is one day coming. And the same is true with us. God took the initiative in choosing and calling us. As Ephesians says, even before the foundation of the world. So we should see God make this covenant with Abraham and go, wow, God is gracious. God and his choice and his selection of Abraham when he was an idolater is incredible in, in making provision for the redemption of humanity. So, so sometimes, I've said this already in this study, you hear people talk about how the God of the Old Testament is just kind of angry and kind of harsh and, you know, he's not really the God of the New Testament. And I would say that that is just not compatible with what we've encountered so far about God. He's incredibly gracious. He's incredibly loving. He is choosing people who have no interest in him, it would appear, to work these great things through. All right, we come to Genesis, our first question, Genesis chapter 20. And I said last week that Abraham had to wait 25 years from God's original promise to make him a great nation before his son Isaac was born. And I wanted you to stop and just think about that for a second. Abraham is 75 years old when God first tells him uh, these series of promises here. And maybe he's thinking to himself, okay, God made me a promise. Maybe a year from now I'll be a dad and, you know, God's word will come true. And a year comes and goes and still no son. And then two and three and no son, and God reiterates the promise, and he has Ishmael through Hagar, and finally when he's 99, God says, it's not even Ishmael that is the child of promise. 25 years pass. What are some of the thoughts Abraham is thinking? You know, did that really happen, that interaction that I had with God? Did I just make that up? I mean, it's been so long. What went on there? Is God going to keep his word? Did God forget about me? This is looking less and less likely here. And yet Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, this is his summary of Abraham's faith. He says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do 
what he had promised. Abraham never doubted God. He said, God spoke, I believe it. And then so we have a little bit of an application question for ourselves. In spite of everything in Abraham's life indicating that he and Sarah would not have a son, he was convinced that God was able to keep his promises. And I asked you, do you know and trust God like this? And ask God to continue to increase your faith in him today. Now, this is rhetorical. I'm not going to ask you whether or not you trust God like this. I realize that's kind of private, but I do want us to think about that for just a second. When something happens in our life, is our first response to trust God, to remember what we know about him, and just have like an inner peace that says, okay, I trust you, Lord. Or, or when something happens and there's a delay and we're like, God, where are you? Do we begin to panic? Do we begin to ask all of these questions about God? Why did this happen to me? God, are you really good? Uh, where are you? Do you see me? Maybe in the quietness of our hearts, we begin God, do you even exist? Are you real? And I think that those kind of questions stem from this type of thinking that interprets God through our circumstances. So if our circumstances aren't all that good, we begin to think, well, maybe God isn't that good. If things don't work out the way we want them to, maybe we think God doesn't really care about me. Tragedy happens and we think, well, maybe God must not be in control if that was allowed to happen. This is a really dangerous line of thinking because not only do we come to false conclusions about God as we interpret him through our circumstances, but we also begin to think that if we were God, we would do things differently, that we would do things better. So you and I must have the kind of faith of Abraham that is convinced of who God is and what he will do for us. It, this kind of faith helps us navigate the storms of life. And if I could just add this, you cannot have the kind of faith Abraham had if you don't know God. It's impossible to trust someone you don't know. I keep saying this, but I'm convinced that as we encounter God in the Old Testament, our faith is going to increase. As we see over and over and over again, God keep a promises. God, keep, God is faithful. God always works out things according as he had planned them. Then we'll see God kept another promise, and it'll build up this faith in our life that goes, yeah, I know God. I know what he's like. I've seen him time and time again in the scriptures prove himself. If he can see the plan of redemption through to its completion, can he not take care of the smaller details in my life? And then personally, if we're a little bit older, we can look back over the course of our life and see God's faithfulness again and again and again and think to ourselves, God's not failed me once before. Do I really think he'll drop the ball this time around? No way. Part of our faith just comes from knowing God. So that when trials come, we can say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I've seen you prove yourself before. I know who you are. I've read your word. I know you experientially. I pray. I walk with you. I read your word. I trust you, Lord. Even though this isn't something that I would necessarily wish upon myself, I believe you. I have faith. I trust in you. Come into chapter 22. In our next set of questions, this is the well-known passage of Scripture in which God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. 
And I do want to address briefly an objection that people have here. Sometimes people might look at this passage of Scripture and say, this is really uh, distasteful that God would ask someone to sacrifice their son. That doesn't really coincide with what I know about God, right? This seems a lot like, perhaps, uh, what we read about later in the Old Testament when people are sacrificing children to Molech, right? How is this any different? Why would God ask Abraham to do something so horrific here? Well, if you're in Genesis chapter 22, I think we can clear this up pretty quickly just by looking at verse 1. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. What God is doing here is simply testing Abraham's faith. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we think about this story. This is just a test to reveal Abraham's faith. Can you, can you imagine if you and I had received this instruction from the Lord? This is the child we've waited 25 years for, and now all of a sudden, God says, I would like you to sacrifice him. What are you thinking to yourself? I've waited so long for this moment, and now it seems like it's going to be taken away from me here. We don't know if Abraham had any of these thoughts. We do know that he just simply obeyed God. He takes Isaac, he goes up the mountain, arranges the wood and binds his son, and as he has the knife raised over his son, and Abraham calls out, Abraham, wait! There's a ram in the thicket over there, go, uh, and he can be the substitute for your son. Go sacrifice him and said, don't harm the boy, now I know that you fear the Lord. This has to be one of the most memorable stories in Genesis, if not the whole Old Testament. And I find it really interesting that the New Testament also alludes to this event. And that's where our first question comes into play today. In the book of James. James actually cites this event in Abraham's life when teaching that faith without works is dead. This is a critical teaching in the book of James, really in the scriptures. You can tell me all you want that you have faith. A lot of people can talk a big game. They can say all these incredible things, but James says, show me your works. Prove your faith by the actions of your life. So I asked you, how does this passage demonstrate that Abraham's faith in God really was genuine? How do we know? Claire? He obeyed God. Yeah. Simply, he obeyed God. We cannot overlook Abraham's faith here. When God gave him this instruction to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham was presented with a choice to let his emotions and everything he knew about death take hold in his heart and to conclude, God, that is just too big of a request. I cannot do that. Or to simply obey God and act in faith. There's not a third option here. Abraham can't hedge his bets. He has one choice or the other unbelief, or faith, and obedience. And here, actually, is Hebrews 11, evaluation of Abraham's faith. We're told this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We're told here in Hebrews 11, Abraham was prepared to kill his son and in faith believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. Abraham knew what God had promised him, was prepared to go through with this act and trust that somehow still God was going to do, 
uh, continue his line through Isaac, perhaps through a resurrection. I do want to point out one thing to you about the book of James. There are some people who come to James chapter 2 and see this phrase that Abraham was justified by his works in regards to him sacrificing Isaac, and they think that perhaps what James is teaching is that we are saved partly by faith and partly by works. In fact, famously, Martin Luther thought this. He read the book of James, and he said, I don't like James that much because it's not really teaching justification by faith. It appears that James is talking about a little bit of works, a little bit of faith, and that's how you're saved. However, if I could just clear the air on that just a little bit here, we have to remember the sequence of events that happened in Abraham's life. This account of sacrificing Isaac happens in Genesis chapter 22. We already this morning quoted Genesis 15, in which Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was when God made all of those promises to him that Abraham believed, and at that point in Genesis 15, he was justified, he was declared righteous. It's not until at least 25 years later, and then however old Isaac was, when he was sacrificed here, that Abraham had an opportunity to demonstrate his faith. James has said that faith without works is dead. Abraham is not this guy. He doesn't just have faith, but his works prove that his faith is real. We know that Abraham's faith wasn't dead because he took action. He obeyed God. Does that make sense? We need to remember the sequence of events here. People, uh, even to this day, believe that James is teaching. We are saved in part by works, and that is just not the case. Abraham was saved by faith, and his works much later in life proved that what happened in Genesis 15 was real that his faith was genuine. So we come to an application question, and yes, second bullet point there. What do you think are some examples of the kind of works that would demonstrate true faith today? What are some of the works that we could have in our life that demonstrate to other people, yeah, your faith is legit? Any thoughts on that? Christine? Obedience. Obedience, yeah. How could you demonstrate your faith is real? Bonnie? I think doing bold things, sharing the gospel and speaking the truth when it would be very unpopular or even potentially illegal in some cases. Okay. Yeah, because what person talks about Jesus in the face of difficulty? If their faith isn't real, they're going to kind of cower and be quiet about it. But if their faith is real, they'll talk in the face of persecution. Yeah, John. When I read that, I thought you meant like specific examples of like in life. Okay. Like, I wrote down staying faithful with God after the death of a spouse. Yeah. Forsaking uh, uh, your addiction for a deeper faith and trust in God. Uh, the example that we have right now staying in a woke, bad, and non-loving marriage uh, to another believer, but still obeying God. So those are all things that require us to have faith, and we're living them now. Yeah, I think you and Christine are onto something. When you talk about obedience demonstrates faith. I want you to think about this just for a second here. How many people 
how many millions, if not billions of people, go through their life and never consult God's word, never think about whether or not it has any bearing on their life. And I would ask, just ask you, why aren't they going to God's word every day like you or I might be? It, they don't know God. They don't believe that these are his words. It's not just the caricature of some angry atheist who lives in your neighborhood who hates God's word and doesn't want to crack it open. No, there are plenty of people who never crack open a Bible because simply they just don't believe that this is from God. There's a lack of faith there. This belongs in Barnes and Noble with everything else that's kind of interesting, but it's not authoritative in their life. However, if you believe that an eternal, all-powerful God wrote the very book that I'm holding in my hand, then there is a certain awe and reverence that comes to approaching every single page of this book. And when you come across a command, it is not optional. It is authoritative because God himself put it there. It's simply faith that this is God's word. And you live by it. You obey it. Here's another example for you. Much like Noah, we prepare for events that are still future and unseen. That is another demonstration of our faith. Noah got to work building an ark because God said a flood's coming. So too do we look to the return of Christ and we live differently than everybody else because there is still an unseen future event from our perspective that is going to happen who knows when. We just have to be ready for it. And in faith, we prepare. Abraham clearly had faith. His actions proved that. And it'd be good for us to pause and ask ourselves, is my life demonstrating true faith? One more question from Genesis chapter 22. As you read this chapter, did you think about another father who did not withhold his only son? Take a moment to praise God for the provision of the lamb. I'm not the first person to see the connection here, but when you look at Genesis 22, it's hard to miss some of the parallels between this story and the great story of God not withholding his only son. And those words of Abraham, when Isaac asks, I see the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. Your Bible may have a cross-reference to the book of John when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just a beautiful story here and one that prefigures what Jesus is going to come and do. Come now to Genesis chapter 24. We did skip chapter 23 in the reading. Uh, if you read it, it's just about Sarah, Sarah's burial. Uh, she dies and she's buried. So we come to chapter 24. It's a lengthy chapter that describes how Isaac got his wife. It seems that Abraham is pretty against the idea of Isaac marrying one of the Canaanite women. So he wants uh, his servant to go back to his homeland and pick out a wife from people that are really his family. I think the verse says kinsmen. It's a familiar story to us, but as I was reading through it this time around, the actions of the servant really stuck out to me. Uh, he's really admirable and I think presents a, a good model for us to consider even as we go about 
uh, our day-to-day lives. So I just ask you, hey, what do you observe about Abraham's servant from the following verses? So we'll take these one at a time. In verses 12 to 14, what stands out to you about Abraham's servant? What does he do there? That's kind of interesting. Yeah, Brenda. He prays for God to show kindness to Abraham. Okay. He prays for God to show kindness to Abraham. Any other thoughts on that? Julia? He asked God to pick the right girl for him. Yes, he asks God for help in picking out a wife for Isaac. He gets all the camels assembled around this well, and before he ever begins the selection process, he comes to God and says, Lord, I need your help in this. How about in verses 26 and 27? What stands out to you about the servant there? Claire? prayer was answered, he worshiped the Lord. Exactly. When Rebecca is revealed to be uh, related to Abraham and he realizes that uh, she is the answer to his prayer, he pauses right there and he worships. It's not like, hey, let me, you know, follow you back to your house and get this all sorted out. He just stops and prays and worships God for that. Yeah, then we come to verse 52, and there's still a question of whether or not Rebecca will be actually allowed to leave her family. Her dad and brother seem to need to weigh in on whether or not she'll be allowed to go. And when they do give permission for her to return back to Canaan, how does the servant respond in verse 52? Cynthia? He was thankful when the, I believe he knows that God was in control of everything. Again, he bows himself to the earth and worships the Lord. And then in verse 56, There's one more thing I wanted you to notice there. Rebecca's family wants her to stay at home for 10 days, uh, but how does the servant respond even to that request to kind of delay her return home? What does he say? He gives God, he mentions the Lord there. I'll just read verse 56. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. The servant here realizes God answered his prayer, he's making care to worship God, to thank him, and he says, even at the end of all of this, I know that God has been guiding my way from the beginning. A little bit of an application for us then. Unfortunately, there are times that we are too proud to seek God's help, thinking we can handle life on our own. Other times we regard things as coincidence, when in actuality, God is at work behind the scenes. So I wanted you to reflect on these questions. Do you make it a regular practice to ask the Lord for help? When God does answer your prayers, are you quick to give him glory? I'm afraid that sometimes we do pray, and we are, you know, in a moment of need, and we say, Lord, I need your help here, and then that prayer actually is answered, and in our hurriedness, in our rush to continue on with our day, we totally forgot to acknowledge God to God and to say, Lord, you actually answered that prayer. Thank you so much. Sometimes our lives are just too busy, and we're moving at such a fast pace that we can't see God at work. And the servant here gives us an awesome example of someone who, in all things, is seeking the Lord's help and trusting that God will direct him uh, every step of the way. Come now to chapter 25 and 26. We don't have a question from chapter 25, but it's here that we're first introduced to Jacob and Esau. Quite a dynamic uh, set of twins here. Even while they're in the womb, they're still struggling with each other. And Rebecca inquires of the Lord, like, what in the world is going on here? Why am I feeling all this inside of me? And God says, listen, there's two nations in your womb. 
and the younger is actually going to be over the older brother here. There's division. Sure enough, when they're born, Esau, the oldest, is born first, but who's grabbed onto his heel? Jacob. Uh, His name actually means heel grabber. And the next story we read about them in Genesis chapter 25 tells the story of Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. He comes in from a day or a hunting trip, just absolutely exhausted. And in a moment of weakness, he sells his birthright to Jacob for next to nothing, really soup and some bread. Um, Yeah, just kind of gives you a glimpse at the character of Jacob. We'll talk more about that in just a minute here. Uh, But in chapter 26, we see that God is advancing and fulfilling the promise made to Abraham. And I asked you, how is God doing that here in verses 3 to 5? Bonnie. Okay. Yes. Yes, God is multiplying Abraham's offspring. Uh, I think there's something else there as well for us to consider. Claire? Expressing the same three elements that we've seen before about the blessing and the land and native nations. Exactly. God is continuing the promise made to Abraham. I think if you and I made a promise to someone and they died, we would think, well, I guess that's the end of that. I don't need to fulfill my promise. But when Abraham dies, God picks Isaac, and he says, Isaac, I'm making these same promises to you. I am going to continue what I had started with your father, and these promises will now be not through Ishmael, but through you, Isaac. You're going to still be a nation. You're going to have a land, and the promised offspring will come through your line. The next question I asked you was to take a moment to rehearse in your mind the overarching story of the scriptures, beginning in the garden up to this point in biblical history. Can you see God paving the way for the one who had bruised the head of the serpent? I went ahead and put a timeline of sorts on the screen here that I can just talk through really quickly. These are a lot of the major characters that we've encountered thus far in the scriptures. And we can see, I've arranged... uh, kind of the vertical columns in birth order, we can see some of the decisions that God has made from the time of Adam about who this promise is going to continue through. So we have Adam, and not Cain or Abel, but Seth, and Noah, and not the oldest of Noah's sons, but the middle one, then Abraham, and not Ishmael, but Isaac, not Esau either, but Jacob. And what we have here is God working, not in means that we might think, But, if I could put it this way, a little out of the ordinary. We might think of the firstborn as being the one who had received the promises, and yet that's just not the case with some of these people. God chooses who he wills through whom to extend this promise. And I think it's just really interesting. A lot of these names we're familiar with, we know they're all related. God is telling one big story here in the Bible from Adam through Jacob and onwards. This is what this is all about. This is one big story. In chapter 27, we have the infamous story of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac. We know uh, Isaac is uh, out in the field 
trying to prepare this meal for his father uh, in the event that his dad will bless him when he gets back. Uh, Rebecca overhears this, and she you know, instructs Jacob to put the goat skin on his forearms and on his neck and to wear Esau's clothes. And Jacob comes in, and his dad feels, oh yeah, you're Esau, your voice sounds like Jacob's, but you smell like him, you, f- you feel like him. There's this great deception that is going on that we'll talk about in just a minute. But how are the events of this chapter a fulfillment of what God had said previously? Already in chapter 25, we should have known that the outcome was going to happen here. Why is that? All right, chapter 25, verse 23. God tells Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. I came across one commentator this week that said, with Jacob's deception, he altered the course of history forever. What do you think about that? No, he didn't. God had already said from the beginning the older is going to serve the younger. And so, unfortunately, even though there is some deception involved here, kind of leaves a bad taste in our mouth how it all came about, the outcome was really what God had said would happen here. God is keeping his word. Second part of this question, I said the moral flaws of the patriarchs have been on full display for us here in the last couple of chapters. I mean, think about it. Some of these chapters we haven't read, but Abraham twice lies about his relationship to Sarah. Isaac follows suit and does the same thing. Jacob and Rebekah, they are involved in this grand deception with Isaac, this manipulation. Some people even see Isaac as ignoring this uh, prophecy in chapter 25 and trying to bless Esau because he favored him anyways. I mean, the patriarchs are not maybe as good a guys as we might think. Why do you think the scriptures record their shortcomings? Any thoughts on that? Christine? Okay, yeah, to show that we're all sinners. We all need a savior. Any other thoughts? Bonnie? I think to show that in spite of our sins, in spite of ourselves, God can still work through us to accomplish what he wants to. Yes, I think you're on the right track there. I think we should read about these guys and think they are not the heroes of this story. In fact, I look at Jacob and I think to myself, I would not want to hang out with Jacob. He does not seem like someone I would want to be friends with. I mean, you never know when he's going to stab you in the back and lie to you. And the point is this, these aren't the heroes. Who who has been faithful and true throughout all of this? It's been God. God uses fallen, wicked people to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, we should see God in this story here. I do have a couple of final thoughts for you. That was our last question, I believe. Just a couple of final thoughts as we conclude. I wanted to end today with just one final connection to the New Testament as we round out the story of Abraham here. We're not going to, Abraham has passed away, we're not going to have any more questions about him going forward, but he is continually mentioned 
in the New Testament. We've already seen that. Uh, there's one instance in John chapter 8 when Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people who are like over the moon about their relationship to Abraham. Three times they say, Abraham is our father. We are children of Abraham. They love being related to Abraham. They love that connection. And Jesus says, well, your actions are actually betraying a different reality. Your father is not Abraham, but the devil. And the Jewish people, they respond to Jesus' teaching. It's so authoritative. And they say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham? And this is Jesus' reply. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And, and, and maybe you wonder, how, how did Abraham see Jesus' day? Did he have some sort of vision? Did he have some sort of special relation, uh, uh, revelation where he like somehow saw Jesus all these years in the future? Well, could I just say that perhaps Hebrews gives us an answer to that question? Hebrews 11 says this, speaking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Is it possible here that Abraham saw Jesus' day with eyes of faith, that he knew what God was promising him when he made those promises to him? And he said, you know what, Lord? I believe. And I know that you are going to make good on this promise to bless the nations through one of my descendants. And that knowledge that Abraham had just brought him joy. He rejoiced that one day Jesus was coming. He died not having even received that promise, but he saw it by faith. We have to go back to John chapter 8 and consider Jesus' final words to these Jewish people who thought way too highly of their connection to Abraham. Again, we are sons of Abraham. He's our father. And Jesus utters these famous words, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's like one of the best mic drop moments in the scriptures here when Jesus says that to them. Just incredible. Anyone remember how they respond? They pick up stones to kill Jesus. They know what he's saying. He's claiming to be God here. Awesome to think, yes, we're reading about Abraham here in Genesis, but even before this, Jesus eternally existed. Pretty awesome. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, again, we're just grateful for the chance to read the book of Genesis, to see all of these connections going back and forth about Jesus and his coming. Lord, thank you for keeping your word. Help us to have this faith of Abraham that just obeys, even when we don't understand, even when we can't see the outcome, but we say, you know what, Lord? I trust you. I'll obey you. I'll continue to walk by faith. Please, God, give us that kind of faith. As we know, we are going to endure trials. We are going to endure hardships and sufferings in this life. Give us that faith to endure and to be peaceful and steadfast in the midst of trials. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.